0: Hello again and welcome to The Worked Podcast. My name is Mark Washburn. I'm CEO of ReadyTech and my guest today is an absolute cracker. It's David Masters from the mighty Atlassian and I think you're going to enjoy the show. Atlassian is the great Australian tech global success story. From humble beginnings, Atlassian has grown to be a monster. NASDAQ-listed tech company, the poster child for Australian tech, and heroes to many of us working in the tech industry. It's hard not to see, for those of us that have followed the Atlassian story, that this is a very purposeful company and one that punches above its weight on speaking up on important issues facing Australia and the world. And to discuss that with us today is David Masters, the Director of Global Public Policy at Atlassian. What you're about to hear is a wide-ranging conversation on topics including collaboration between business and government, why we are both backing digital skills and talent pipelines, and why it's now expected that leaders speak up on important issues. I thought it was a fascinating discussion. I hope you do too. So here it is. So joining me in the podcast studio, it's David Masters from Atlassian. David, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, firstly, may I ask how you are?
1: I'm, I'm doing well. I'm a little bit tired. I got up early this morning, flew up to Sydney. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not at my best right now, but <laughs> I'll do my best.
0: <laughs> I think you're going to do amazingly well. And uh, I've got a lot of light like to talk to you about. So let's kick off. As you know, the podcast is really all about the future of work and careers and education. And more often than not, it's fascinating to hear about our guests' personal journey. So, would you mind telling us your own story of your of your career to date?
1: Yeah, it's been been a pretty weird journey for me, I, I not very planned. Um, grew up in country New South Wales. Uh, I was born in a place called Narandra. I spent a lot of time out at Hay, far west of New South Wales, and I went to, to school for a little while in Goulburn. And, uh, you know, when I left school, I, I kind of knew I was... You know, I was good at writing. Um, communications sort of came naturally to me, so I was looking at, at a career option there, and so I thought journalism was probably my career. So I um, I went and did a pretty broad bachelor of media degree out of Macquarie University, and, and thought oh, I'll you know, get into journalism after that. And um, I was leaving uni. I wanted to do sports journalism or you know political writing. I, I did politics as well at university and had an interest in that. And, uh, you know, I was struggling to find a job. I probably didn't do a lot of the legwork that you need to do to get into those careers while I was at uni. And uh, I had a mate who got a job at an IT mag. And I thought, oh, in technology. It's kind of a, a new industry. It was sort of the, the back end of the, the first dot-com boom. And uh, so I started throwing my hat in the ring for a few different uh, different gigs at um, some very technical trade magazines. And I, I sort of landed a, a gig for a telecommunications uh, magazine that's now, you know, Dead and buried, and there were a couple of other smaller magazines. One that did CRM, and uh, another one that did software development. So that was sort of my entry into technology. Uh, dot com boom became dot com bust, and and I survived around of redundancies and thought maybe this isn't you know the long term career option for me. And I opened a paper one Saturday morning. There was a job going as an advisor in a minister's office, and I'd always had an interest in politics. And I kind of read. It was one of those weird sort of uh, sliding doors moments where you read a job ad and you kind of go, "That's that's me." i sure. Throw my hat in the ring yeah. and I moved to Canberra 19 years ago. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, that was that. So I I worked for three ministers for communications, IT and the arts uh, over the course of about five years in the Howard government. And then uh, did a short stint in the public service, worked for a government relations consultancy for a little while. And then I've worked for a number of IT companies since then. So Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft and, and now Atlassian. And it really reminds me of something that one of my previous
0: guests, Daniel Cohen, said from, from Flare HR, which is that often careers are like a drunkard's journey, <laughs> that there's, a, there's sometimes a randomness uh, to it. But uh, also, ultimately, if you look back, it can be quite logical. But uh, what do you think there is to learn uh, for, for, for others from your career journey?
1: I think as long as you've got a degree of self-awareness and you know what you're good at and you know what interests you, I think the rest of it is, is reasonably easy because you tend to gravitate to things that, that, that both interest you, but use skills that you've, you've, you've got. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, random drunkard's journey is, is a pretty good accurate description <laughs> of my career journey, but no, I've been very lucky. I've ended up in a, in an interesting niche that that's pretty valuable. So,
0: and, uh. Moving on to where you are now and your role at Atlassian, I think, first of all, it strikes me that if you're going to be a director of global public policy and you're going to be doing it out of Australia, Atlassian as a company, it feels like the dream job.
1: Oh, yeah. Look, it feels like every job I've done up to this point has been leading to this one. And, you know, I've worked for large US multinationals and there's a perspective of looking into Australia, whereas this is very much from Australia looking out and uh, for me, that's 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 an incredible opportunity. I've, I've largely been given a well, pretty much a blank sheet of paper to say, well, you know, go and build a public policy function, you know, go and see what sort of influence we can have on US European policies. Um, I mean, really, Atlassian is it's a it's a global company, and the majority of its customers are outside of Australia and, and largely in the US and, and Europe. So, um, you know, I do a lot of work in Australia. Obviously, Australia is my home, and and um, you know, Mike and Scott are very focused on the domestic sort of political situation and policy scene here, but but the things that probably really matter most to our company are actually happening in, in Brussels and in DC.
0: Right. And uh, look, it sounds like a fascinating role. Can you go, would you mind going into a bit more detail, you know, where you see the real focus areas for the role, you know, in, in the coming years?
1: Yeah, I think, again, it's, it's sort of, there's a bit of a dynamic, you know, certainly what you're seeing around cybersecurity, around privacy, data protection you know, that's that's the real key driver at a global sense. And then if you look at what, what we do in Australia, it's it's a lot around the innovation ecosystem and sort of the investment settings. Um, you know, in addition to their roles at Atlassian, Mike and Scott, you know, are investing quite heavily in that ecosystem in Australia. And so, you know, we think a lot about the settings of, of how you stimulate that, that kind of innovation ecosystem. And it's actually, you know, things have been trending in a very good direction. If you look at where venture capital is at, versus where it was five years ago, it's grown exponentially in Australia. So I think things are trending in a, in a good direction, but there's there's more that can be done. I imagine it's been really helpful that you had
0: that time where you spent within government, so you understand the, the dynamic of that and the, the motivators and the drivers of government, so that when you're on the other side, helping to educate government or collaborate government, that you, know, that you can understand and, and I guess have a translation layer between the two.
1: Yeah, I think it's also, there's a degree of empathy. When, when you've been in their shoes, you, you can sort of say, well, look, I understand where you're coming from here. And, you know, like you know, I was talking to government, and they were sort of saying, oh, well, can we, can we do this after the budget? And I said, oh, absolutely, I completely understand. You know, I've, I've done that. I've worked in the Department of Finance. So, you, you know, I think it, it, it allows you to build rapport with people because you've you've been in their position. You can empathise with with what they're going through. Um, and and really, yeah, as you say, act as that translator between the two different perspectives, um, and help find where there's actually a lot of common ground. Because sometimes the two parties might be feel like they're a long way apart, but actually there's a lot of common ground yeah. in between. Yeah, no, totally, it makes
0: sense. I think that, that when it comes to technology, I always feel there's a very genuine challenge for government. Is that you know we obviously promote and encourage and allow technology companies to go off and and innovate and throw off the shackles of innovation. And then government kind of has to work out how to then retrofit, for example, areas like regulation? I'm obviously thinking right now about areas like data and and privacy and security and so forth.
1: Yeah. Look, and I think that will always be a challenge for government. I mean, I think the technology industry and the private sector can just move at a pace that the government will always sort of struggle with. I I mean, the one interesting thing and one of the reasons why there's actually been a lot of focus on tech regulation in Australia is that probably the Australian system can actually move a little bit quicker than a lot of systems can. I mean, I I talked to... um, you know, I talk to people in DC and, you know, the legislative process uh, in the states moves really, really slowly. And, and in some respects, because of our political system and because of our, our system of, of, you know, the Westminster system of parliament, we, we can, we can kind of get things done fairly quickly, particularly where you've got a majority. And, and if the government can get the legislation through the Senate, you know, things can happen within weeks. And, you know, we've seen tech legislation, I think the, it's the abhorrent violent materials Act that was proposed one weekend and was law by the next, which is kind of unheard of um, hasn't really happened here before or since. But, but that's an example of how quickly we can move versus versus others. So,
0: now you, you talked about a thriving technology industry, and I think a really good example that I saw recently that you were involved with, and I, and I know you led it, was a, a roundtable with government uh, to to look at R and D incentives, you know, particularly in software and technology. Uh, Thank you very much for inviting ReadyTech along to that, by the way. Uh, but uh, can you talk a bit about that and why it's important, and how you see that approach as being effective?
1: Yeah, look, that's a that's a really good example of where there's a there's a lack of understanding on both sides of, of the kind of motivations of government by by industry, but also of, of kind of what's actually happening with industry from government. Um, and, and so, really, there was an opportunity to bring the two parties together to just run a workshop where it was it was really about just sharing information. Um so it was an opportunity for government to kind of present some of the challenges it's had in assessing software based applications through the um, uh, through the R and D tax incentive. And then also for industry to kind of demonstrate to government that the industry's changed a lot, that the that the commercialization models are, are very different to what they were ten years ago, that that software as a service and cloud models mean that we we're continuing to innovate on top of our platforms, you know weekly yeah. you know daily it, it's it's a pace that I think government has really struggled to understand because they're going well where's the point of commercialization here it's well it's an Continuous. ongoing process yeah. of, of commercialization yeah. so you know and that's that was good because it, it actually everyone came to the table with the right um, sort of mindset and and really were thinking about I want to make sure I'm being heard and listened to and you know so it was it was a good conversation and and really that's that's where the magic happens, where you create safe spaces where people are, you know, they're vulnerable to say, look, I don't actually understand this or I'm willing to learn. And then you can have an open, honest conversation.
0: Yeah. And it is a great example. And you mentioned your, your founders before in, in Scott and Mike. You know, it has been very important for them to to support this technology industry in Australia. Yep. And, uh, you know, I think from my perspective, and you know, I certainly believe that. We can't rely on digging things out of the ground forever, but the, the software industry, it creates a lot of jobs, doesn't it? You know, uh, To build a software company is really a human discipline and requires a lot of people, so just, just a great thing for the c- country to get behind.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if you compare it to, say, the minerals industry, I mean, there's a huge capital investment before you can pull anything out of the ground, whereas our capital investment is in people. So, you know, the very nature of investment in our, sec- in our sector is job creation. Um, so, you know, we're only really constrained by our human resources. And so if we've got the access to, to you know, to a customer base and we can grow to meet that demand, um, you know, really that that's, you know, adding hundreds of thousands of jobs in, in that sector. And we can do it really quickly. And that's, um, you know, we'll come to, to skills in a second, but that's why, you yeah. know, the skills system is really important to meet that demand.
0: Totally. So, look, I think a lot of the focus that's kind of connected to some of the work that you're focused on really derives from Atlassian's sort of purpose and values. And you know, obviously, you've got a privileged position to be <laughs> inside the company yeah. looking out now. So, can you can you share a bit about that?
1: Yeah. Look, I've got to say, I mean, worked, work having worked for a number of companies, it's the most open company I've I've, I've ever worked for. It is truly. An open book. I mean, it, it, it fosters that really sort of uh, culture of sharing and learning, and then that extends, you know, not just inside the company but out to our customer base. You know, if we we learn things, we want to share that more broadly, and you know, we, we publish a whole range of playbooks around how teams can can cooperate more, you know, more effectively, and collaborate more effectively. Um, so you know that that value. Open company, no bullshit, which is one of our famous values. It, 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 you know, from what my experience, it, it's really very much a lived value. Yeah, I, I think it's just this. You know, there's a real honesty inside the company as well. Uh, we're not afraid to have you know kind of difficult conversations and sort of face up to to the reality of situations. So no, I, I'm um, I'm finding it, it very much lives up to the hype.
0: Yeah, and uh, back back to the founders again. You know, I think that of course you know, they've really become quite prolific commentators on issues that that are important to them. And, and obviously at times those are important to what they believe are important to Australia. So, you know, it really is somewhat of a shift, isn't it? From previously how uh, CEOs and so forth thought actually their main focus was actually just creating shareholder value, yep. right? This is quite a shift to, you know, really understanding the wider place in the community and commenting on that and, and voicing that.
1: Yeah, look, I, I think, that's a challenge for government. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm in a position where I, I engage with government a lot. I think government would much prefer industry to, to stick to its knitting and to focus on you know, creating jobs and growing the business and making money. But, you know, we, we did a report last year where we actually went out and surveyed you know, people's perspectives on this, and, and we actually found some really interesting things. Uh, 69% of Australian employees actually agreed that businesses should be just as concerned with their societal impact as they are with the financial performance, so that you know that triple bottom line reporting is actually really expected by the employee base. So companies are kind of being pulled in a couple of different directions here. One is you know the the employee base is expecting them to have a voice on these issues and expecting them to you know to live those values, whereas you've also but you've got kind of government going, well, you know is it just virtue signalling? are you you know just doing this because it makes you feel good? And I think, that's where the really important work needs to be done to to actually have some rea- you know to ground that in reality so if you're not living those values truly if you're not you know if you're engaging in climate change you know what are you doing as a company do you have your own targets for net zero are you investing in renewables uh, you know so i feel confident that at lastian we can we can talk about those things with a degree of credibility because we're living it you know we're actually making those investments we you know we we you know we're acting as well as talking um, and you know, for example, there's a big push to get more involved on Indigenous issues. Um, you know, the Uluru Statement of the Heart. There's consultation happening at the moment around um, the Voice to Parliament, and I think, again, that's something where you need to be very humble uh, if you're going to engage in that issue. You need to think about, well, what am I doing to make an indi- a, you know a difference to Indigenous Australians? Am I employing people? You know, so I think that you know that real grounding in reality is important if you're going to engage on those societal issues. And I think. The employee base expects you to do that as well.
0: Yeah. And it, it seems to me it's generational as well, isn't it? I think yeah. you know, you mentioned that stat before of sixty odd percent or whatever the number is yep. there that, you know, it's an expectation that the, the leaders of the company will speak out. Even more so I think from younger people.
1: Yeah, and, and they'll go elsewhere. If they're not if they're not if they don't feel that the company they're working for has that kind of heart, has that social conscience, then they'll they'll look elsewhere. I, I think you know, we spend a lot of time at work. Um, And in some respects, even though we may not be going into the workplace as much as we were, we're probably actually spending more time on work issues because we've got the, you know, we've got the laptop open at home and, you know, when we may not be doing as much commuting. So in some respects, you're actually spending more time at work than you were before. So if that's not driving your personal passions, if that's not really giving you, you know, that sense of fulfillment and purpose, then might as well do something else.
0: Okay, David, I'm going to take you back to an area that you mentioned earlier, and you've been very close to the digital skills base for a while, and I actually have the great privilege to be working with you on the digital skills organization, really trying to solve for, you know, what are the right digital skills for the future, and really trying to improve this system, what do employers need, making sure that we have, you know, as close as possible fit for students and, and candidates and, and, and workers as possible. Can you share a bit about these digital skills agenda, you know, why it's important and, you know, what you think we need to be focusing on?
1: Yeah, look, I, again, i we're talking about sort of, career journeys, another area I've sort of fallen into and really fortunate uh, to have fallen into. Actually, it's really interesting. I, both my parents actually worked in the vet system. My mother was a TAFE teacher for a while and my dad actually uh, ran the animal husbandry program at the Yanko School wow. of Agriculture, cool. uh, College of Agriculture, I should say, um, for, for a while. So, you know, I, I guess it was kind of a happy um, accident that I ended up, you know, sort of falling into that again. Um but yeah, through, through sort of happenstance, I ended up on the ICT industry reference committee, which looks after all the VET qualifications in the technology space. And as a consequence of that, I've been really fortunate to join yourself and, and others on the digital skills organization. And I think the remit that we've been given, which is a really broad one, to sort of look at reforming training around digital skills and improve the linkage between the training system and employers um, to really drive you know, digital skills forward, huge demand. It's a complex issue. There's there's challenges in terms of the training system moving fast enough to keep up with industry. We talked about you know government trying to keep up with industry moves. I think the training system equally has been really struggling to to catch up. Also, that kind of employee acceptance of training as well. Vet sort of pathways into the technology sector aren't really well accepted. You know, interesting enough, I've I've got a cousin who, you know, who works in IT who just did a diploma at a TAFE. Um, so you know, it's it's a pathway that's existed. But we need to get back to sort of um, really getting employers to accept that as a, as a pathway, that university isn't the only option to get into technology. And I think that's where the real opportunity for Australia lies, is really to kind of focus on what parts of the system do what well. And I think we've gotten a little bit um, – the system's become a bit too blurry in that universities are trying to do vocationally focused work. You've got the VET system, which is trying to do mini university courses. And so really focusing the VET system on what it does well, which is, which is you know, skills, developing skills. Universities are fantastic at knowledge and, and building you know, that sort of higher learning and the ability to engage with complex subjects in a deep way. Um, and again, I think if we, can, if we can get the system focused on what each of parts of the, the training and education system do well – um and that's where I think the real opportunity from the Digital Skills Organization is because we've kind of been given a blank sheet of paper, really, to say, what does good look like? And you know, don't necessarily worry about how the system sort of operates at the moment, but think about how does it work in the future and how do we give employers what they need for, for you know for their digital skills. And I think because the economy is digitally transforming, it's it's important. Basically, it's the interesting thing about our space is where the where the with the horizontal that powers all industries. Um, so we're not this vertical sector. You know, agriculture is being transformed, and you know we're, we're fortunate enough to have Emma Weston on the board. You know, from Digital. it's transforming how you know defence is working. And you know, Tom Moore with with you with me, who's been on this show as well, um, is on the board. You know, has come from that defence background. So. You know, having those unique perspectives and being able to think really broadly and thinking really creatively, I think it's a fantastic opportunity. I'm really lucky to be there. Now,
0: you described that just so exceptionally well. It's been a really rewarding thing to be involved with. And I think one of the really key challenges has been getting employers to accept some of those alternative pathways. Can you talk a bit more about how we might solve for that in the future?
1: Yeah, I think it's only by doing. I think you've got to demonstrate to employers that it is a pathway that they can, you know, look to access talent um, I think we're in a really unique position right now because the borders are shut. <laughs> so if you're gonna access talent, you're gonna have to find it inside, you know, the walls of Australia right now. So that's not gonna come from overseas migration, it's gonna come from training. Um so you're gonna have to look at the human capital you've got here and how do you transition that to the to the new jobs of the future. So I, I think there's a real moment in time where we can actually really drive that conversation forward because I think you're gonna get a point get to a point where companies are looking to grow that are looking to invest in technology. We've been through COVID-19 or we're not fully through it, but you know we've been through probably the worst of it in Australia. And as a consequence of that, people have recognized that it was digital technologies that really kept the, kept the economy going. Um, so as a consequence of that, you're seeing companies you know double down in that investment that they had to scale up really quickly um, during the middle of the pandemic. And I think there are examples out there where you've got creative people starting to think about how do I stimulate those vocational pathways. I was listening to, uh, to another uh, podcast recently, and Tobias Lutke, was the, the CEO of Shopify and started Shopify in Ottawa, Canada, fascinating journey. He started as, a, uh, as an apprentice in Germany. Uh, I think it was a subsidiary of Siemens as a, as a software programmer, but as an apprentice. Did that for a while went to uh, Canada, who was a, a snowboarder, went to Whistler, met a Canadian girl, usual story. she went back across to Germany for a little while and then he moved back with her to Ottawa,' the capital of, uh, of Canada. And he built Shopify from there, started as actually a software as a, a snowboard shop that he had to build the back end for and he had other people saying, well, actually I really like your software. would you sell that to me? And so he built the business on the basis of that. He's been now reinvesting back in the education system in Ottawa to sort of create the vocational pathways that he experienced in early in his career. Awesome. And I think you kind of need those people who've come from that sort of background. Yeah. And so we, it, it, it's kind of becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. The more people you feed through the system that have come out of vocational pathways, then the more you have employers that see that as a valuable pathway to, to work with, so they'll go and talk to a TAFE, or they'll go and talk to an RTO, or to a, you know an, another training provider outside of the accredited system, and think about alternative ways to get the human capital they need to grow their businesses. And then when you've got those people inside the business, then they also because they've been through that pathway and they've seen the value of it, then they want to you know hire people from that background as well. So you just unfortunately it's one of those things where you just got to do it. We've got to get more of the more people with that background into employers. Um, grow that from there, and I think, it again, it you get this sort of feedback loop that, that sort of operates from there.
0: I think that's so interesting. And if, I think if you think about technology and how much that's changed over the last 10 years, think about how it's going to change in the next 10 years, like the amount of the sheer volume of digital skills that will be required, you know, I think it's, it's mind blowing. So to be part of that, and as well as the digital transformation that's happening everywhere, right, like software is eaten the world or is already eaten the world, right? So such yep. an important area.
1: And we're never going to stop learning. Um, we're always going to have to retrain. I mean, I think uh, technology is continuing to move forward. So there'll always be newer tech, new technologies that companies that are adopting and they'll need to train their staff on that. And, you know, they'll get to a point, tipping point where the functions have shifted so much that the people that were doing those functions before need to be transitioned or possibly do something else because, you know, it's either been automated or, or um, you know, the, the workplace has shifted so dramatically and you, you've got to avoid people being left behind. So again, that's a really important role for the digital skills organisation is really to create those pathways, not just for people into the sector, but for people that are, you know, within employers at the moment, how do they transition from what they're doing now to what those, um, you know, to, to add the skills that they'll need going forward. Yeah. And and connected to that, uh, from
0: Atlassian's perspective, you know, can you talk a bit about the importance of how, how the company thinks about the development of pipeline and technology talent, uh, Specifically, here in Australia.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where when you're a you're kind of the the first big company to sort of grow from Australia and and really grow at that kind of global scale, it's a unique challenge. So there are certain skill sets that kind of don't really exist in Australia that that operate those cloud systems at scale. So we've kind of needed to bring some of those in. Um, You know, we 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 keep a lot of the product development here in Australia, and we want to add. You know, we want to maximize that and continue to do that. But we do need to augment that a little bit. So when we think about skill migration, we tend to think about those job-multiplying sort of roles. So how do you bring people in that have worked within organizations at scale, often on, usually on the West Coast of the States, bring them in, build teams around them, and you know, sort of use them to train other people uh, to bring their experiences to the table? Again, we talk about sort of learning by doing, and you kind of only know how to operate software at scale by operating software at scale. And so, you know, that's the kind of skill sets where we've needed to augment that local development with skilled migration. But once we've got that, then, again, you're able to build an ecosystem here because you've got people who are learning as they go. There's a lot of Atlassian alumni who've gone out and started other companies, um, or they've taken their experiences to other companies like Canva, for example, and the things that they've learned at Alassian they're able to transfer to, to those growing companies.
0: It's uh, really back to that thing we were talking about before, isn't it? Workplace learning, a huge amount of the technology skills are actually learned on the job, totally. in teams, from peers, you know, with feedback. So, you know, to me, leaning into the apprenticeship model in the future, you know, has just got enormous potential for the digital space.
1: Oh, look, you know, I think if you talk to anyone who's come out of university, they probably learn more about the job in the first two weeks of working than they, they, yeah, they learned through the university career. Now, that's not saying university isn't valuable. It, it's really good to help you to think, you know, to analyze, to think critically, to, to engage with complex topics. And, and that's a useful skill set that's been very valuable for my career. But I remember, you know, I learned more in my first two weeks as a journalist than I learned through my whole media degree, which was largely about becoming a journalist, <laughs>
0: And David, talking about pathways, how should we be thinking about our young people and uh, pathways for them and the right sort of career advice probably takes us right back to, to young David Masters, actually, in Lelandra.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think it's it's really saying there's, there's no wrong pathway. I mean, I think we got very fixated that uni was kind of the only kind of option for kids and, and sort of saying, well, you know you need to go to uni, otherwise you kind of failed. And if you think about, um, you know, I know you've had a lot to do with Saxon Phipps at, at year 13. And, you know, I think about his journey and why he sort of started that, because he really wanted to improve careers advice and talk about pathways because he, you know, there's there's sort of, a, a, you know, kind of a, a an ATAR factory that many schools sort of operate, get you the best mark, get you into the best university degree, and then, you know, you're laughing. And I think there's a point, particularly with this generation, it's probably, they're the most qualified, most educated generation we've ever had. Um, you know, I think about my sister's 11 years younger than, than I am and she's got a master's, um, you know, I didn't go back. My wife is doing a PhD, but you know, there's a lot of people at the end of the, that that probably aren't really satisfied with where they've kind of ended up. And was that the right sort of thing for them? I think they've really enjoyed the education. They've enjoyed the experience. Um, but I think we need to be starting from first principles and saying, well, look, you know, there are multiple ways to get into careers and to get into exciting Mm -hmm. careers, and you need to choose the one that, that feels right to you. If you want to go to university and you you want to, you know, you, you're really stimulated by that academic engagement, then go to university. That's fantastic. But also you shouldn't devalue you know, going through a, a you know, a vet pathway or doing training or, you know, just getting into a job. If you just need to get into a workplace and start working, that that's totally fine. I mean, one of the benefits of growing up in a country town is you see, the people with the best houses are carpenters and plumbers. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Um, you know, it's tradies. Um, so, you know, thinking about my kids, I mean, I, 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 I'm not going to be dismayed if they decide, Dad, university's not for me. I want to go and do this. I'm not going to try and dissuade them that. As long as their argument's good, as long as they've thought it through and they've gone, this is the reason why, because I've thought, you know, I really just want to get my hands dirty. I want to do this, and this is, this is what really motivates me. As long as they can answer that question and they can engage with you on that, totally fine.
0: That's really interesting. If, I'm going to switch you to another area, if I may. All right, and there's been a lot of discussion. We're coming off the back of the COVID area in the future of work about remote work, and it's another area where you know Atlassian have uh, had you know sort of taken some quite strong views publicly, uh, and really backed that future of remote work. So really interested again from an insider's perspective is how the company's thinking about that, particularly when it comes to areas like learning career development, mentoring, and so forth. I'd love if you could share a little bit about what Alassian's doing around that.
1: Yeah, well, look, I'm a net beneficiary of it because I I live and work in Canberra. Um, So I work from my home. I'm I'm part of what we call Team Anywhere. Um, So I think we made a very deliberate decision, and and it was actually something that was happening before COVID-19 hit. We already had a lot of people that that were working remotely. Um, We've just accelerated that as a consequence of COVID-19 and really become much more Uh, mindful about it and really that's grounded in a couple of things one is you know when you shift your mindset from a fixed point geographically you're suddenly opening yourself up to a a much broader talent base um so you know if you're stuck on the west coast of the states and you're just accessing the talent pool there well you know you're also subject to you know the quite tight labour market that operates there. If you think you know, open it up and say, "Well, we don't really care where anyone works in the states." Well, suddenly you've got a much broader talent base. And then similarly in Australia, if you know if we're just focused on Sydney, there's a you know there's a pool of talent in Sydney, and it's a great pool of talent. But there's also people in Newcastle and in Wollongong, and in Melbourne, Canberra, Adelaide. And you know when you've when you've shifted your mindset to go, "Well, we don't really care where anyone is. We'll, we'll make it work for them if we get access to their talent." and suddenly it it's it it's really really changes the mindset there are a couple of things that come with that that you you need to be much more mindful on how you bring people together and so the workplace becomes less of a place where people come to do work and more of a place where people come to to gather socially to to engage in different ways to have that kind of face to face collaboration that that you know people crave and sometimes is really really good for creative output so You just become much more deliberate about how you use the workspace and, and, you know, what it's there for as opposed to just being the place that everyone drives their cars to or, you know, catches a train to and, you know, works nine to five. I mean, you have to be much more deliberate in how you collaborate. Um, you know, th- those accidental conversations that happen in a workplace where you pass someone in the, you know, in the hall and think, oh, you know, I should have had a chat to them about that. You, you, need, to, you need to catch yourself and, you know, there are digital tools that allow you to do that, Slack and other messaging platforms where you can go, oh, I've had an idea, I better put that down now and catch someone while I think of it. Um, but also making sure that you're also very effective when you do jump on a Zoom call or, you know, you're engaging over a phone call. From a training point of view and from a you know bringing people into the business i, I think that's something we, we you know we're still learning how to do that effectively I, I i was onboarded into atlassian remotely and and actually went pretty well for me but i'm obviously i' you know not very long in my career mm. it It's challenging for for people coming to the business because they do require you know you want more feedback in your you know your early career you want more sort of hands on mentoring and and so again there's things that that um that we have to do to be more deliberate about ensuring that they're getting that through. That one of the things we've said, and, and it was kind of a bit misreported because some people have said, "Oh, it'll only be four days in the office." It's four times in the office that we'll actually make sure that people can come in to engage with their teams because we do we do recognise that that you need that social interaction between people to build rapport. You can you can do a lot of that over Zoom or you know video conferencing, but but you know. It, you just need people to come together because then, you know, you, you're getting those sort of uh, visual cues, um, you're getting body language, things that, that are harder to do over video conference. And, and again, you know, things like going out and having a beer with, with you know, you, just like that social interaction is really, really important to build teams and to build um, rapport.
0: Oh, absolutely. Totally experiencing all of that firsthand <laughs> at, at our company. Uh, and um, look, you've, we've talked a lot about purpose of Atlassian and the company also talks about legacy, which I think is 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 really a, quite an interesting topic and one of the things that the company has talked about is helping to create the next Atlassian in Australia. Can you talk a bit about what we should expect there and, and why you think that's important to the company? Yeah, look as
1: Scott Farquhar sort of said you know if, if in you know ten years, twenty years time that you know Atlassian is the tenth largest tech company in Australia, then that would be a good outcome um you know I, I, I think and that's genuine I, I think really they they think that there's a there's a huge opportunity for australia to double down on the investment in digital and to double down on the investment in in you know in in, in software um because it, we started off by talking about how software is that great job creating sector because it's it's const, only constrained by its human capital
0: i'll tell you what as well it's really interesting creative and oh, fulfilling totally.
1: work totally and, and i think when people think about software careers, they think about software engineers, like the people just coding in the background. But there's designers, you know, there's people working in UX, there's people working in graphics, there's people working in, um, you know, marketing and sales, and you know, there's a whole range of careers that 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 you know that sit around you know the core sort of coding that happens at the back end. So absolutely, there's fantastic careers in software engineering. There's also fantastic, you know, career opportunities for people, as you say, that are creatively minded, um, that have great marketing concepts, that that you know really get fascinated in how people interact with, with um, devices and interact with um, with design. So you know, it's it's a fantastic career. You know, I don't have a background in software engineering, but I've had a 20 year career in technology. So.
0: Look, we're coming to the end. I absolutely love talking to you, David, as, as always. Just interested if maybe anything else that you can share on, you know, what we or tech companies or any company can actually learn from the Atlassian story.
1: I think there's a lot to be said about perseverance. I mean, I think if you if you hear the story, I, I think, um, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, another podcast, How I Built This, and um, interestingly enough, apparently Mike and Scott's recorded their <laughs> version of that in this same studio. Um but you know the one thing that you hear from founders is just that, that, that real vision and that purpose and that drive and, and not willing to deviate from that vision. So being really quite single-minded, but also thinking about how you build culture. And I think that's the real secret source of, 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 of Atlassian's story is really be building a deep, strong culture that will, you know, that will last for, for a long time. And you know we talked about the values uh, inside the company and they are, they are real. Um, and I think it it came from a place where, as the company was growing, you know, as you as you're growing quite a, a company rapidly and fast, and you're adding lots of people, you, you potentially lose some identity as you as you grow, um, because you know, you, Mike and Scott talk about, it, you know, you, you were deeply involved in hiring the first fifty people, but the fifty people after that were probably hired by other people, and the fifty people after that were almost certainly hired by other people. So how do you ensure that the people that you bring into the business understand? What the business is about, not just about you know what you build and how you work, but actually how you engage, how you show up, um, you know the, the spirit that you bring to things. Um, so, you know, so we talk about one of the one of the values is um, build with heart and balance. So you know, have, putting passion into things, but also you know balancing that with with the reality. Um, so I, I, I think, look, the thing I've I've found it's sort of funny when you. You know, they, they talk about drinking the Kool-Aid in, in, in technology. And, and, you know, it is easy to sort of dismiss that. But, but when you come into an organisation, you actually do see the culture and you see it living. Um, I think it's very real.
0: Mm, no, it's super inspiring. I mean, not, not only have we actually built the Really Tech company, Based on a lot of Atlassian software, <laughs> yeah. taking a lot of cues from the way that the company has thought about purpose and culture.
1: Yeah, I just have a huge admiration for people like yourself that have built businesses because I, I just it's not something that I <laughs> in me I'm not a risk taker. Um, I just I, I probably lack that purpose. I'm a bit too um, bit too flighty. I, I kind of you know get distracted by you know colors and shapes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: having that that you know that single vision and and being able to drive and execute that. I mean I just. You know that's why I'm, you know, really fortunate to sit on the digital skills organisation with a number of CEOs founders that have built companies because I just find, you know, people like yourself incredibly inspiring. So,
0: oh, that's so awesome to hear that, especially <laughs> from you. Very flattering. I um, we started to talk about right at the top your day job working with government. So, what what could you share with us about what do you see the opportunity for government in particularly in a digital world?
1: Yeah, look, I, I think it's a really good time to have that conversation because because we're you know, we're coming through the pandemic and because digital was so core to how we continued to operate, I think governments, it's it's dawned on government just how critical digital technologies are to the operation of the economy. And I think there's a moment in time to talk about the opportunity for Australia to not just um, invest in, you know, the digital sector itself, but also how it transforms other parts of the economy and how we really, you know, focus on transforming agriculture, transforming manufacturing, transforming mining, and then what... Benefits can we drive on the back of that? Scott Farquhar talks about how Australia is 1.6% of global GDP. And so, you know, if we're going to maintain a competitive position in the world, we need to be at least developing 1.6% of its software. Um, and so, you know, as we continue to focus on, you know, not just deploying digital technologies into the industries where we're very competitive, but how do we then pull companies out of those transformation? We talked about Emma Weston at AgriDigital. You know, as you transform the agricultural supply chain, there are huge opportunities for companies to emerge out of that that have a, a massive global niche. Um, and how do we double down on that and stimulate that growth? Because I think, I think where one thing the government maybe hasn't got its head around is that symbiotic relationship between an industry transforming, and the supporting sector around that. And and if we can grow both, because then you've got the productivity and economic benefits that come from transforming those industries. And then you're building globally competitive companies that are supporting that transformation, who can then go and export their wares elsewhere. And I think once we've got that connection working, I think that's when the magic happens. David, thank you so
0: much. For coming on. It was absolutely fascinating. Really appreciate the insights and congratulations on getting your absolute dream job as well, by the way.
1: No, thank you, Mark. I'm, I'm loving it. So, awesome.
0: So, there you go. David Masters from Atlassian. I absolutely loved speaking to David. I hope you found the content today as inspiring as I did. I'd love to know your thoughts. So, please drop me a line on LinkedIn and please, please, please. Don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about Worked and also subscribe to the podcast on your favourite streaming service. Have a great day. I'll be back soon.